Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Um, going to continue on with uh, the episode today, D-Day. Um, we're going to talk tonight starting out with uh, deception. In preparation for Operation Overlord, massive and ingenious deception operations were used to trick the Germans into believing the attack would not come in Normandy. Even after the attack began, these preparations would trick them into thinking it was a feint. Under the overall heading of Operation Bodyguard, several different plans, most famously Operation Fortitude, were used to trick the Axis of Evil commanders. The Allied efforts were widespread. In the Mediterranean, an actor who looked like Montgomery was dressed up as a general and used to create a story of the invasion where it might occur there. Diplomatic pressure on neutral Sweden together with a supposed invasion force in Scotland created the illusion an attack might come in an occupied Norway. But while such actions did a little to spread German resources and sow confusion, they were nothing compared to the focus on the Pas de Calais. This web of lies was easily to weave because it was so believable. The Pas de Calais was the attack route that made the most sense, thanks to the short journey across the English Channel and the presence of several substantial ports. These facts made the lie quite easily to swallow. However, making it easily to decline as Hitler as the Allies' true intentions. Double agents were crucial in the success of this plan. Early in the war, the British tracked down every German agent in the country. Some were imprisoned, but others were turned, becoming British double agents. They were used to feed false information to Germany on several occasions. They provided a mixture of true and false information that made the lie of Calais invasion quite convincing. The most important double agent was a Spaniard named Juan Pajul Garcia, named Garbo. The Germans were so convinced Garbo was a useful spy for them that Hitler awarded him the Iron Cross. Garbo fed the Germans information about the supposed Calais landing, which was scheduled after the real operation further to the west. After D-Day came, Garbo continued feeding false information to his contacts in Berlin, who continued to believe that the D-Day landings were not the major invasion that was going to take place. The subterfuge provided the Allied forces with extra time to consolidate their positions and press forward before the Germans committed any additional forces. One of the most extraordinary parts of the plan was an imaginary invasion force. The first U.S. Army Group, FUSAG, was created in 1943 as an administrative formation to help planning for the invasion and was initially led by General Omar Bradley. Bradley and his staff were moved to the headquarters of FUSAG, a force which existed only on paper. FUSAG was nationally based in Kent, the natural staging ground for any army assembling to cross the channel from Dover to Calais. Set builders from film studios and theaters were brought from London to Kent, where they built a fictitious army. There were barracks and tents for the troops, 
and life-size models of landing crafts and tanks, all convincing enough to trick the limited aerial reconnaissance efforts of the Germans. Radio signals were used to support the illusion. Military radio traffic filled the airwaves of Kent and was intercepted by German military intelligence as it drifted across the channel. The Allies could tell this had been effective because they themselves were so much better at intercepting and decrypting German signals. As the date of the invasion approached, a new leader was assigned to FUSAG. General George S. Patton was known for his aggressive and effective command style, which he had demonstrated against the Germans in North Africa successfully. He had been removed from command in Italy due to disciplinary issues, and now he was put in charge of the imaginary FUSAG. The Germans rightly feared Patton. His arrival to command FUSAG therefore made it even more convincing and intimidating. One of the most elaborate charades of the operation was used to bolster FUSAG, a badly injured panzer officer held in Britain as a POW, was being returned to Germany. He was told he would be traveling through Kent. There he saw armed forces being amassed for an invasion that was introduced to Patton as commander of FUSAG. This provided Germans with eyewitness testimony for the existence of the fake force in Kent. What they didn't know was that the POW had been diverted through Hampshire, which the real armies were assembling, and where Patton had been brought specifically for the encounter. The troops were the D-Day armies preparing to attack Normandy, and Patton was a visitor like the German prisoner. The whole thing was a lie, a deception to the Germans. The activities of the Allied forces were adapted to match the rest of Operation Bodyguard. Prior to Montgomery taking over, the planners for the invasion had concentrated aerial reconnaissance flights on the Norman coast, where the attacks were scheduled to land. Montgomery and his staff quickly changed this, extending aerial reconnaissance to cover the whole Channel coast, focusing on the area around Calais. This increased the effort needed to gather useful information, but ensured these flights would not provide the Germans with clues about the attack that was coming. Similarly, when they started bombing German communication lines in the build-up to the invasion, the air forces spread their effort over a wide area, maintaining the illusion the Allies were focused on the Pas de Calais. All this effort would have been for nothing if German intelligence gathering had been more effective. But Allied efforts to counter it paid off. The turning and incarceration of spies at the start of the war ensured there were no German accurately reporting on events in Britain. Allied aerial superiority prevented effective German aerial reconnaissance, preventing the enemy seeing through the charade that was FUSAG. The overall impact of this work was substantial. The Germans had to stretch their defenses to cover a great length of the French coastline, preventing them from concentrating their resources where the real invasion was going to fall. Hitler held the veteran 15th Army around Calais for weeks after the invasion arrived, as he wanted them to fight off the strike by Fusag, the great deception of, of Hitler. 
So we're going to continue on just a, a tad bit more here um, in this episode. We're going to talk about the extraordinary commanders of the Allied forces. Many extraordinary men led the Allied offensive on D-Day. The first, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the man at the very top. Eisenhower was the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Forces. Born in Texas in 1890, Eisenhower was descended from German Mennonites, ironically a sect of extreme pacifists. He graduated from West Point in 1915 as an unexceptional new officer, coming in 61st academically and 125th for discipline out of a class of 164. He served in several posts before attending the Command and General Staff School, where he graduated first out of a class of 275, and then went on to the Army War College. Eisenhower served in the Philippines as an aide to General MacArthur, but left before the Japanese invasion of 1941. Back in the USA, he gained favor by planning the largest war games the country had ever run. When America joined the war, he was sent to join the planning team in Washington, where he was involved in early discussions about the invasion of Europe. As overall commander of the Anglo-American invasions of North America, Sicily, and mainland Italy, Eisenhower had the experience for his role in Overland. He lacked experience as a combat commander and was not an outstanding tactician but he had the tact and political skill to manage the various strong personalities under his command, including Montgomery and Patton, as well to delicately handle the French who wanted to be treated as a major power despite their lack of military strength. Let's go to the next commander, General Bernard Montgomery. Born in 1887, Montgomery went from school to the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. He was then demoted for setting fire to a fellow cadet and didn't graduate high enough to secure a coveted post in the British Indian Army. Montgomery spent the First World War progressing through the ranks, and as infantry officer, he was severely wounded at the First Battle of Ypres. The horrifying loss he saw in Flanders made him determined determined never to use such senseless senseless tactics again. He concluded that serious long life study was needed for military command, shaping his studious approach to leadership. During the fall of France in 1940, Montgomery led the third division in the vanguard of the British Expeditionary Force. Events there proved his skill as a leader, leading to senior positions despite his undiplomatic manner. In August 1942, he was made commander of the British forces in North America. He turned around the dispirited 8th Army and defeated Rommel at Alam Hafa and El Amin, becoming a hero in the beleaguered British Army. When the Americans arrived, Montgomery's abrupt handling of them contributed to poor Anglo-American relations, giving Eisenhower's first experience managing Montgomery's awkward personality. For Operation Overlord, Montgomery, commander of the ground forces and commander-in-chief during the initial invasion, his revision of the operational plans made Overlord 
the success it was and later earned him a promotion to field marshal. But his arrogance and his insistence for all successes were, were down to his own planning ensure that he would continue to antagonize colleagues throughout the duration of the war. General Miles Dempsey, one of Montgomery's most trusted subordinates, Dempsey led a large part of the British and Canadian forces during the D-Day landings. Born in 1896, Dempsey graduated from Sandhurst before becoming a British infantry officer in the First World War. Injured in a German gas attack, he had a lung removed. After the war, he served in posts around Europe and the British Empire, attending staff college and continued his steady rise throughout the ranks. As an infantry commander during the fall of France, Dempsey led his men in several defensive battles. They played an important part in the rear guard during the retreat to Dunkirk. Late in 1942, Dempsey was promoted to Lieutenant General and sent to join British forces in North America. There he caught the attention of Montgomery, becoming one of his most capable commanders. He helped plan the invasion of Sicily and commanded the airborne troops who spearheaded the attack. Montgomery chose him to command the British Second Army, the main British and Canadian force, during the D-Day landings. Unlike his superior, Dempsey was modest and unassuring. Like Montgomery, he was an effective military commander. Air Chief Marshal Sir Trafford Lee Malroy. Born in 1892, Lee Malroy was training to become a lawyer when the First World War broke out. He volunteered to join the British Infantry as a private, quickly becoming a second lieutenant, and was put through officer training. After recovering from an injury, he joined the Royal Flying Corps, where he distinguished himself in the new field of aerial warfare. Following the war, Lee Malroy stayed in the RAF. He received staff officer training and served and commanded staff and training post. In the late 1930s, Lee Malroy became commander of 12 Group, which he commanded during the Battle of Britain. An ambitious man, he was heavily involved in backroom politicking that was disruptive to the RAF. At times, he exaggerated the successes of his preferred tactics to further his career. His plotting paid off, and changes in the RAF saw him continue to rise through the ranks. He lobbied for a single overall commander to be created for Allied air operations during Overlord, and when this proposal was accepted, he was given the post. Opinions of Lee Malroy varied. Montgomery liked him as he provided the air support the general wanted. Eisenhower considered him capable, but somewhat, somewhat ritualistic in outlook. Admiral Sir Burton Home Ramsey, born in 1883. Ramsey joined the British Royal Navy in 1898. He quickly rose through the ranks and commanded several ships during the First World War. Ramsey was brought back into service in 1939 by Churchill. Ramsey had retired in 1938. He oversaw Britain's naval defenses and, in 1940, led Operation Dynamo. The evacuation from Dunkirk that brought home 338,000 Allied soldiers cut off by the advancing Germans. In 
Following Dunkirk, Ramsey grappled with the Germans for control of the channel. He was involved in the invasions of African Sicily, giving him the experience of seaborne landings, which made naval commander-in-chief, and he was made naval commander-in-chief for the D-Day landings. Ramsey coordinated a massive fleet of 7,000 vessels used to safely deliver 160,000 men to the beaches of the first or on the first day, the largest naval armada of the history of the world. Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Tedder. Born in Scotland in 1890, Tedder's early career was similar to Lee Montgomery's, a civilian volunteer who joined the infantry at the start of World War I. He transferred to the Royal Flying Corps and started in the RAF after the war ended. He rose through the ranks, becoming Director General of Research at the Air Ministry in 1938. Tedder was transformed to RAF Middle East Command in 1940. There, he provided air support for the evacuation of Crete and ground operations in northern Africa. His tactical and administrative skills led to improvements in the British forces in Africa. In 1943, Tedder took over the Mediterranean Air Command. There he served under Eisenhower and took part in planning the invasions of Sicily and Italy. He came to Overlord with Eisenhower and served as Deputy Supreme Commander. General Omar Bradley. Born in 1893, Bradley worked as a boilermaker before attending West Point in the same class as Eisenhower. Quiet and dependable, he rose through the ranks and the Interwar Academy Army, taking on command, training, and staff posts. In 1942, Bradley oversaw the transformation of the U.S. 82nd Infantry Division into the 1st American Airborne Division. Graduating from West Point in the same class as Eisenhower, his classmates and later his contemporaries considered him quiet and dependable. He became a troubleshooter that helped to shaped the Allied forces into a cohesive fighting machine. This was partly about building up the experienced American army, but it was also about keeping the peace between the Americans and the British. He commanded the Corps in the latest operations in Tunisia and the invasion of Sicily. As commander of the 1st United States Army, not to be confused with the fake 1st U.S. Army Group, Bradley had overall command of the American ground forces during D-Day. Steady, capable, and discreet. He was excellent at reading a battlefield. Like Eisenhower, he helped to keep the peace in an operation, sometimes troubled by strong personalities and the politicking prevalent in the air services. So we, we've we laid out the players, the cast of characters for D-Day, and uh in our next episode, we're going to talk about the men, the soldiers, and the equipment they needed, how it got there. So, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out.